0: When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Judges 2.10 Welcome to the Bible
1: Questions podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program.
0: Hello, and welcome to today's Bible Questions podcast. My name is Jeff. I've got co-host Brian with me today. How are you doing, Brian?
1: Hey, doing well. Thank you.
0: Yeah, today we're going to examine uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 10, and some of the lessons that we can learn for us today. Now, it's kind of interesting, again, within the book of Judges, uh, after the Israelites had left Egypt, wandered through the wilderness, and had entered into the Promised Land, what happened? What happened to Israel that caused such a situation where an entire generation did not quote unquote know the Lord? Brian, in, in today's podcast for our listeners, you know, we want to evaluate basically you know what happened to the nation of Israel and kind of answer this question and determine how there was a generation who did not know the Lord. We would like to leverage that to kind of look at our society today. And see what kind of parallels we can draw to our own generation, if you will. Consider what we can learn from them. And then finally, kind of look at what we can do as parents, grandparents, Christians, to maybe help prevent you know our current and future generations from likewise failing to know the Lord. So there's sort of a kind of a quick preview of coming attractions, so to speak, Brian. you have anything else you want to add before we get rolling?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting for those who are familiar with the history of Israel in the Old Testament, this was really the first case where, well, I shouldn't say first case because, you know, we saw after, shortly after they were delivered from Egypt and began wandering through the wilderness where they started to murmur and complain, and even some wanted to hearken back to going back to Egypt and and so forth. So I guess what we should say is that really throughout the history of Israel, There was just sort of up and down where depending on the generation there was either faithfulness or unfaithfulness and you know even after what we're going to talk about today there went through a period of time where god had to raise up judges and prophets because israel was not faithful and those judges and prophets were able to restore sometimes a generation sometimes part of a generation who would then start following God again, and then they would fall away. So it's almost kind of symbolic, Jeff, I would guess, to say, of a lot of people's lives, right? Where if they're not fully committed to the Lord, or as parents, they're not doing their job and properly training their children, that it doesn't take very long, does it, before you have a generation that now no longer knows, respects, or follows what God would have them do?
0: Yeah, good point. And, you know, sometimes we can see what sort of happens in the family. When magnified across countless families, you know, within a culture or within a nation starts to have compound consequences, if you will, with, I'll say more often than not, kind of negative consequences and a whole, if you will, kind of a whole nation and kind of drift in the direction we're talking about. So certainly something very relevant, not only at a national level, but also at an individual, personal, family level.
1: That's exactly right. And, you know, when we look at the life of Joshua, Joshua was a very good leader, and he held the people accountable, not just the people as in the Israelites, but the priests and the leaders to make sure that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And then you had these elders, right? You had the heads of families who also were very serious about making sure their children and grandchildren understood the story and knew the story of God's deliverance and what God had asked them to do, and the, what the consequences would be if they failed to do it. And so Joshua is such a wonderful leader, and, and once again, not just him, but also those elders and leaders uh, that were alive with him. And so, as Jeff mentioned in Judges chapter 2, after Joshua died, and all that generation, as he read, you know, were gathered to their fathers, we then see in the book of Judges that there was this generation after them, that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. So let's just start with that central question. You know, Why was there this generation of Israelites that forgot Jehovah? Well, let's just get a little bit of context that will help us to understand this. So first, if you have your Bibles handy, turn over to Joshua chapter 24, because we want to take a look at some verses in here that help us to understand what happened. So verse 6, Joshua is kind of recounting. This is prior to his death. He's recounting for the Israelites, what God had done for them. So he mentioned verse 6, that God had delivered them out of Egypt. Verses 11 and 12, you know, God drove out all the nations that fought against them prior to and even after they entered the land of Canaan, if they did their part, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. And then verse 13, God here, I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. So God greatly blessed them. He didn't just give them the land of Canaan, but he gave them cities and houses and vineyards and so forth. And then, you know, all God really asked for in return is that they be obedient to him. And so Joshua throughout his life and certainly near the end of his life implored them to do so. So, for instance, in verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. He goes on in verse 15, it says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve The Lord. Now, we're not going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, but I would encourage you, if you haven't read this, or if you haven't read it in a while, just read verses 16 through 28. Because what you'll see there is that the people listened to what Joshua said, and they agreed with it, and they committed to serving the Lord. So, for instance, in verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And so if you go on to read, you'll see that Joshua made a covenant and a statute and recorded it in the book of the law. And then not only did he do that, but he set up a large stone as a witness or a reminder of their promise to God. So every time they saw that stone, they would be reminded, you know, we made this commitment to serve the Lord. We need to keep our commitment. And then verses 29 through 31 in that chapter, you know, from the time of the covenant that Joshua made until the time that Joshua and the elders died was estimated to be around 15 years. So during that time, they were faithful. In fact, we see that mentioned in verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So I want to emphasize that part about knowing all the works. You know, when we talk about parents, who teach our children, or could even be grandparents to teach our grandchildren, or just our neighbors, whatever it is. Part of that, and an important part of that, is them understanding who the Lord is, what He's done, why we would serve Him. And that's one thing that they did a great job of during Joshua's leadership, and once again, the elders who outlived Joshua. So there are two key failures that really occurred. And Jeff, if you would, could I get you to read Deuteronomy chapter 30? verses 15 through 18, where, you know, Moses warned them, so prior to them wandering through the wilderness and, you know, the leadership being handed over to Joshua, if you will, Moses warned them of what could happen when they went into the land of Canaan. So,
0: Jeff? Hey, Deuteronomy 30, starting verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess.
1: Yeah, I really like how the Lord just made it crystal clear here, right? I'm giving you two choices, life or death, good and evil, your choice. And oh, by the way, here's what's going to happen, right? If you're faithful, you keep my commandments, statutes, judgments. I'm going to multiply. I'm going to bless you. The opposite's true that I will cause you to perish if you turn away from me. And, you know, certainly as the creator of them in the universe, God had every right to say that. So part of them knowing God from generation to generation was this being conveyed down through those generations. And so what were the failures? Well, number one is that they allowed themselves to be influenced by those in the land, as Moses had warned. So if you turn over in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, Notice what it says beginning in verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13 says they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the asterisks, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Verse 15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So God did exactly what he told them that he would do if they forsook him and started serving All of these false gods, the Baals and the Asterisks and and so forth. So when you think about one other important command from the Lord, that was that God would give them this land of Canaan. But because the people in the land of Canaan who were idolaters would have influence on them, God told them, you must drive them out. And God wasn't leaving it up to just them. God was on their side. God, he said, would fight for them. By the way, that's a reference if you want to see that command and what God told them to do. You can reference Numbers chapter 33 verses 50 through 55. Well, Judges chapter 1 verses 21 through 34 tell us that they failed to do what God asked them to do. And so, you know, many tribes of Israel, as you read through Israel's history, allowed the inhabitants to continue to dwell in the land. In some cases, they allowed those people that lived there to just pay them tribute but allowed them to continue to live there. Well, that was not God's plan because God knew that by allowing them to live there, paying tribute or not, once again, they would influence them to do immoral things, including serving their gods. And so, you know, by virtue of allowing them to live in the land, some of these, like the Amorites, became stronger and stronger. And if you look at Judges chapter 1, verse 34, it even references that, you know, because the Amorites became so strong, they forced the children of Dan into the mountains. So they couldn't even stay within their own inheritance that God had given them because they allowed the Amorites to become so strong, they drove them into the mountains. Well, Jeff, you know, there's a really nice summary over in Psalm 106 of like, okay, here's what happened overall. So if I could get you to read verses 34 through 42, it, it just really gives us a good synopsis of what happened here.
0: Certainly. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot, By their own deeds. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people, so that he abhorred his own inheritance, and he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand
1: you know the first time we read through passages like this i I don't know about you jeff but i just find it shocking shocking that they could really sacrifice their sons and daughters and you read about like with Molech and how this burning fire and they would sacrifice their children often because those children were the result of immorality sexual sins they didn't want the child they used the sacrifice as an excuse but in other cases they really believed in these false gods and were willing to sacrifice their sons and daughters and i guess you know, if we look in our modern age, we can draw an analogy to abortion. People who get an abortion are sacrificing, shedding innocent blood of their sons and daughters. So it's just, it's once again, just shocking. Like, how could people get to this point? But yet we see that today, and we'll get more into that. But so what was the result? Well, the result was, as we read early on, right, that there was a generation that did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And so that's what became of their situation when they did not follow exactly what God commanded them to do. Now, there's also an element here of where the parents failed to teach and remind their children of what the Lord had done to them. So I'll give you a section of scripture for our listeners to read, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 25. And I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights, you know, verse 7 of of Deuteronomy 6 God here commanded the Israelites, you shall teach them diligently to your children, his principles, that is, and statutes. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And then if we skip down to verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments? Now, what would prompt a son to ask those questions? Well, the parents had been teaching them. And so now the son's mature enough where he's going, well, what is the meaning of these testimony, statutes, and judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed us signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. So basically teaching his son, that's how we arrived where we're at today. And then the father would also say, verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. And so, once again, when the parents in that generation that Joshua lived were doing their job, this is what was occurring. But as we saw, when that stopped happening, then like any other generation, over time, people are going to start doing what they want to do. Jeff, I'll turn it over to you.
0: Yeah, thank you, Brian. Yeah, a lot of good lessons that we will try in a few moments to apply you know, to our own generation, if you will. I think there's one other aspect that I'd like to highlight. And that we can see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. Brian, can you go ahead and read that for our listeners?
1: Uh, Yes, here it says, beginning in verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good in the end, then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth.
0: So, you know, certainly as you indicated, probably a failure on the part of the Israelites to properly train their children. But there's also this undercurrent in the passage that you read, which is also echoed over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, that when, generally speaking, when things are going poorly, people may turn to God more and rely more on God. And when things start getting, uh, you know, nice and cushy, it may tend to forget God. And that'll become important in a, in a few moments as we talk about our own situation, modern day, you know, thousands of years after Judges was written. Before I go there, Brian, anything else you want to comment on before we do that?
1: I like that point because you're right. Prior to them being delivered from Egypt, they were miserable. They were crying out to the Lord for help. Times were not good. So you're exactly right. They were reaching out to the Lord more, we might say.
0: Right. So, again, we want to kind of fast forward to today and see what lessons we can learn and apply. But before that, I think I want to give just a little bit of a history lesson for our listeners especially those who may not be familiar with the history of the United States. Certainly, the United States is not a quote-unquote Christian nation, which some people claim that it is. That said, if you go back to the founding of the country, 1600s, 1700s, a very large number of people and groups that came to this country had some kind of a religious background, and in many cases were actually fleeing religious persecution some of them fleeing persecution from the Church of England, some of them fleeing persecution from the Catholic Church, etc. And so while the nation was not a quote-unquote Christian nation, you know, it was certainly founded somewhat in a religious context or the context of religious persecution. And certainly at the time kind of reflected a lot of what we might call Judeo-Christian principles that eventually made their way into our system of laws, our Declaration of Independence, That declares you know people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights various references in the government to opening congress with prayer establishing a national day of thanksgiving to god and i think it was abraham lincoln that did that so basically a nation that somewhat culturally kind of recognized god and you know not necessarily a particular religious denomination somewhat in general, you know, religious foundation. Now, going back to the passage that Brian read a few moments ago, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we said, sometimes when people undergo hardship, like those fleeing European religious persecution, or even perhaps in our own culture, the Great Civil War, for instance, they tend to have a stronger religious faith. But when things start going easy, they start drifting away from that. In some ways we kind of saw that back in what was called the roaring 20s with morality if you will to some degree, uh, national morality if I could use that term loosely, kind of fading, falling, uh, you know, into immoral behavior and boom, we have the great depression, a time of, of extreme, you know, hardship, economic, financial, etc. and again, in general a nation that somewhat stayed anchored on various religious principles, you know, condemning lying, cheating, stealing, holding certain morality up you know, in terms of being good, etc., and then wham, another major hardship with the Second World War and some things that followed. And yet, in the 50s and into the 60s, 1950s, 1960s, you know, we see a lot of economic boom and prosperity, since basically our economy was the only one that survived relatively untouched. Know, after World War II, and so you have the great American dream, you know, house uh, in the suburbs, uh, and, and economic flourishing, and like Deuteronomy teaches us, we also start seeing the rise of, if I want to say, drifting away from God, being more aligned or wanting to pursue one's own personal pleasures. We certainly see that in the 60s, with the, the hippie movement, Or with the free love movement, the rise of, I'll call it, fornication, et cetera. And other movements, you know, rebellion against authority. Uh, We see outright rebellion in, I think, like the late 60s, early 70s with the anti-war movement, et cetera. So I don't want to bore our audience with history. But we certainly have seen in our country some trends that mirror what the Israelites went through thousands of years ago. So that kind of takes us up to today. And of course, when this broadcast is being recorded, you know, we're in New Year, 2023. Where are we today? Well, let's observe in our current society that we have, unfortunately, a lot of acceptance of immorality. You know, marriage between a, a man and a woman, faithfully vowing to one another, That's becoming old school. I mean, marriage is just not respected. We have unmarried people, you know, living together, at least statistically more so than at any time in history. At least according to one research survey back in 2019, 69% of adults say it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together. 40% of births are outside of the marriage relationship here in the U.S. In other countries, 70%. Outside of marriage, for instance, in 20, 2002, the number of people that saying having a baby outside of marriage is okay was forty five percent. That's in two thousand and two. Today, it's up to sixty one percent saying yeah, it's okay, no big deal. Uh, we have the breakdown of family, more single parents. Certainly, seeing you know the rise of homosexuality, homosexual people now being granted you know full rights uh, with uh, marriage. With adopting children, etc., we have people that go on national television and talk about all kinds of things without shame, you know, on television, social media, in terms of their personal lives, their personal lifestyles, you know, getting drunk, fornicating, again, homosexuality, etc. It's almost a badge of honor. Uh, And this degree of immorality has pretty much permeated just about every form of communication, Movies, TV's, songs, video game, the internet—I mean, it's it's become norm. And to top it off, these kinds of worldly ideologies, so to speak, uh, are being taught to our children in public school at taxpayer expense. For instance, you know, evolution certainly uh, being taught—that uh, you know we don't need a creator God, that evolution is you know the proven, no doubt about it, or explanation of origins. Children are being being now even encouraged to question their God-given gender, encouraged to take hormone blockers or go through gender-changing surgeries, what some might call genital mutilation, et cetera, you know, as early as six to eight years old, and are being encouraged not to even mention this to their parents. Bottom line is these and other things are pointing to, you know, an ongoing rise of immorality. Certainly, there's a lot of, also I might add, part of this cultural trend, kind of a a warped view of the country, where if you have lighter skin, well, you're the bad guy. If you have dark skin, well, you're oppressed, you're the victim. And you need to push for restitution, push for equity, push for any number of different things, and basically class warfare, if you will. Financial, economic, you know, class warfare between quote-unquote classes. So, rise of immorality. We might say rise of gambling. You know, no longer is it limited to just, you know, Las Vegas or a few special places. Basically, all the states now have legalized it and made it a form of revenue generation. Casinos, lotteries, betting on sports events, uh, etc. In fact, in, in some ways, there's even kind of a subtle, if you will, a preparation of children for gambling, even in like arcades where you play these games and you win tickets that you can turn in for prizes. You know, gambling, along with gambling, comes a lot of other evils like crime, drinking, prostitution, etc. Certainly, we've seen a rise in the redefinition of terms. Again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, what used to be called marriage, again, between husband, wife, male, female, is now just between any two people. Uh, hate. Uh, has been redefined as when you do not agree with someone's beliefs or lifestyles christian now has, has been somewhat of a general term that you know includes anyone who believes in any aspect of god or deity etc you know morality standards of right and wrong have become a matter of somewhat individual choice you know what's right for you might not be right for me you know you can decide for yourself you know your truth And I'll decide for my truth. Uh, I'll do whatever, you know, you do whatever is right in your eyes. I'll do whatever is right in my own eyes. And consequently, unfortunately, as a result, those who do profess Jesus, those who do try to be Christians, you know, according to the Bible, more and more seems like they're starting to get vilified for what the Bible teaches. And certainly when they stand up and say, you know, that is immoral, that is wrong, etc., It's interesting, Brian. Uh, You want to go ahead and read John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, where even Jesus kind of indicated why this happens.
1: Yes. uh, Here it says, The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God.
0: Now, Brian, certainly the Bible has some things to say about we as Christians should do about this situation and our world and our attitudes toward the world. But before I kind of get into that, did you have any other comments about, you know, current trends, cultural trends, you know, with the direction the country's going?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you and I, of course, living here in the United States have really good background and perspective on our own country. And of course we have a lot of listeners from around the world. And what's interesting in some of the countries where we have friends and maybe evangelists that we support and that sort of thing, you know, they really conveyed that as those countries sort of progress from a technological perspective, a wealth perspective, you know, a larger what we might say like middle class and so forth, that what we saw with the Israelites, what we you have illustrated well for our country they're starting to see the same things. And so I appreciate you giving some context around, yeah, there was one element of parents not teaching their children, but it was also this element of people becoming very comfortable. And so therefore, this is what can happen and often does happen when men have more money or they have stable situations and they have food eat and they become comfortable. It's all too easy to start saying, well, I can just rely on myself, I've got it made almost subconsciously, right, they're no longer following the Lord. And so, you know, we just warn everybody to just be careful of this attitude because you may not necessarily set out to, quote, unquote, forget the Lord. But once again, as you become more comfortable, it can be so easy to allow this to happen.
0: Well, and yeah, that's a good point because in some ways in economic wealth, you know, we tend to lack Humility or gratitude, as you read earlier in Deuteronomy 8, you say in your heart, My power and the wealth of my hand has gained me this wealth. So there's that aspect. But I guess there's also the aspect of, and since life is so easy, I can kind of do what I want to do. You know, I, I've got spare time, I got disposable time, I got disposable income. You know, I want to spend it on myself and what I like to do. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong in that. But it often leads to this attitude of me, me, me. And, you know, I want to do what I want to do. And you better stay out of my way, (laughs) unfortunately. Yes. So returning to the Bible, a number of different principles that we should kind of keep in mind as Christians. Number one, do not love the world. Uh, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says, do not love the world. For the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, that he who does the will of God abides forever. So, number one, do not love the world. Number two, do not be transformed by the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And number three, do not desire to be rich. Be content with what we have. You know, Watch out for the love of money. And of course, we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, where it talks about godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. But having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Of course, we see that echoed in the Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs 15, verse 27. He that is greedy of gain troubles his own house. And then, of course, number four, that we should not pervert or change or twist the truth. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Put darkness for light and light for darkness. Put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And unfortunately, Brian, we see a a lot of that today where one's sexual orientation or one's gender identity and the ability to freely express these sexual things that's a quote unquote good thing. Or the ability to abort or kill one's own unborn children. That is a good thing. That is a right that women should have. And many other things we could mention. But unfortunately from a biblical perspective, those things are evil even though people are calling them good.
1: Right? Yeah, and those are such good general principles that you mentioned from 1 John 2 and, you know, 1 Timothy 6 and as you just read in Isaiah 5, you know, it really shows you how the Bible deals with these general principles that are relevant in any generation. And when we just see it come to light in our own generation, it just echoes more and more how man is the same, that there is nothing new under the sun, as we might say, and how God has given us these general principles, which we will just learn them then we'll be able to recognize this and and stay away from it. So if we look at kind of the next question, and that question would be, well, what can be done to prevent our next generation from not knowing the Lord? That's just something we want to ask because of the, once again, reality how in many countries we see this degradation. Well, first and foremost, to kind of go along with what we've been saying, you know, we, we need to make sure we realize that it's possible to be led away with error. So 2 Peter 3, 17, Peter here warns, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. So whether you're a Christian or not, so easy to fall away as we've been touching on when you're influenced by the world around you. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 and 13, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened, through the deceitfulness of sin. So that's the other insidious part of what Satan brought to this world. And that is, even if you're a believer, you can allow yourself to be so influenced that you become hardened, like we saw with the Israelites and have we've seen in many generations. And now you no longer fear the Lord, respect the Lord, and you depart, as it says here, from the living God. And so we just want to be careful that we don't become desensitized. And how do we do that? Well, one way it mentions, we are to exhort one another daily. And so that's the beauty of having Christian friends and spiritually minded family, is that we can encourage and exhort one another to do what's right. Now, another key piece of this is, of course, raising our children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as we are instructed to do in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And if you think about it, you know, it really starts with our righteous example. So, Jeff, as you kind of alluded to, and you had these parents that were living in these houses and became comfortable, well, not only did they allow themselves to stray, but now they weren't teaching their children. And so, as Paul encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, that you know, really we should all be an example in word, in conduct, in love, and spirit, in faith, and in purity. So I think we realize as parents, it's one thing to sit down, study, teach your child, that's important. But how you live your life, they're watching you. So, how do you conduct yourself? Are you loving? Do you do what the Bible teaches? Do you do what you teach that they should do? Are you pure? All those kinds of things. Jeff, you want to read for us Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where it also talks about this?
0: Certainly, Brian. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. So just like 1 Timothy 4, once again, it's saying we are to be a pattern of good works.
1: We are to show integrity incorruptibility, and, and sound speech. Certainly our children will pick up on all of that, won't they? So, you know, there's also a general principle that's found in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I call that a general principle because we know that it's not always true, but the reality is it is often true. That if you give your children the spiritual foundation that they need, and you're the good example, they see that you live as the Bible teaches as well, well, then often they're going to carry that out through life. And so, you know, teaching is so critical, but so is the discussion of the application. So just also want to mention, find opportunities to speak to your children about what they're studying, what you're studying with them, what they hear in a sermon, whatever it might be. Help them to make connections, to understand the context, how godly principles will actually apply in their life and when they should know to turn to the Lord. In fact, I think we all know just by virtue of you studying and reading and applying that there are many situations that will arise in your life where you just have a passage that pops up in your mind and you know what the Lord would have you do. Help your children to get to that point. And so like God required the Israelites, we also need to tell the story of what God has done for us. In fact, Psalm 78 is a wonderful psalm where it actually talks about this. So Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children. That the generation to come might know them the children who would be born that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in god and not forget the works of god but keep his commandments so such a wonderful passage here in psalm 78 because it just talks about generationally you can see generation after generation of faithful christians If parents do the right job with their children, and they reinforce it, and the children love the Lord, and then they do the same for their children and their children, and so forth. And the opposite's true. I think we all understand that if we do not teach our children properly, the world will. You can just count on it. Okay, the last section here, Jeff, and then I'll turn it over to you as it relates to this question, what can be done to prevent our next generation from not knowing the Lord? Well, we have to spread the gospel. So it's not just about our own children. It could be our grandchildren. It could be our neighbors, right? So there are so many in the world still today that do not realize the benefits of the gospel, the good news. And unfortunately, many suffer in life because of their ignorance of God's basic principles. So it should be our desire to show them the truth and teach them how it can change their lives. So one passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where we can show them that all scripture is given by God, it's profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. That we may be equipped, as it says in verse 17, for every good work. So we can share that passage with them, but then show them many places in scripture where that's true. In fact, Jesus makes a promise that the world cannot promise anyone. And he said over in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that's not Jesus saying, hey, you'll never have trouble in life. But what Jesus is saying is if you're obedient to his will and the Lord's will, and you're faithful to what you're being asked to do, number one, it's not this extreme burden. God's not asking you to do things you can't do, or that's just so overwhelming. But instead, what he's asking of us is reasonable. And when we do it, we have rest, we have peace of mind, knowing that we're doing what God would have us to do. And then the last passage we want to consider, and we won't read all of this, we'll just take a look at a couple passages. But take a look at Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, because inevitably when we speak to somebody, we need to make sure they understand the hope of heaven and the reality of hell. And that god is just and that he's fair and we're going to simply be judged based on how we've lived our lives so romans 2 talks about that verse 6 who will render speaking of the lord will render to each one according to his deeds tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also to the greek and then verse 10 but glory honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the jew first and also to the greek And then verse 11 finishes up by saying, for there is no partiality with God. So the fact that we serve a just God who has given us direction and instruction and who will faithfully judge us based on how we live our life, really, can
0: we ask for any more than that? I mean, it seems very reasonable. Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, let me sort of highlight something you said briefly about, you know, if we do not teach our children, the world will. Yeah, let me highlight that for a few moments. Certainly in terms of, public school in public school what I might say indoctrination the world will work on our children certainly social media the internet movies music will teach our children that's a given all that is going on so you know the, the point I would make there is is whether you realize it or not someone is teaching your children the question is what are they being taught so that's you know one point I wanted to make the other point within this section, Brian, you're you're kind of referring to individual action. And there's a lot of things that uh, Christians can do individually, you know, like within their family as an example. But, you know, the other thing I might mention is that as at least within the United States, as citizens of our country, you know, we have certain, you know, rights and privileges that are granted to us as citizens. And that even though we are not a theocracy, so to speak, like the Israelites were, even though our standard of government and standard of law is not anchored in the Bible, certainly the nation originated, if you will, under Judeo-Christian principles. And as citizens, we can lobby for those principles just like other citizens can lobby for their principles and whether that is exercising our right to vote, whether it is exercising our right to go to school board meetings and speak up for morality and or other ways, you know, certainly we as individual, you know, citizens, you know, can exercise those things and basically realize that in a culture, keep reminding people that choices do have consequences. Brian, I'm reminded of like Proverbs 14, verse 34, that says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So certainly something else as individual citizens that we can do within our culture, given whatever rights the the government has granted to us, depending on what country we live in. Any other thoughts before we uh, move to the next section?
1: No, appreciate that. Very good thoughts. Thank you.
0: Okay. So, you know, I mentioned Christians as individuals. You know, there's also things that we can do as a church, as a local congregation. Certainly, we can encourage and help each other. You know, that's why God commands us to assemble together as a local congregation, not only to worship Him, but also to encourage one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And that of course, is not only encouraging, but also trying to restore or confront or rebuke, etc, when Christians start to fall away. Galatians chapter 6 verses one and two. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And of course within a local congregation also includes, you know, teaching and encouraging you know new converts. Second Timothy chapter four verses two through five. I tell you what, Brian, why don't you go ahead and read that passage for our listeners?
1: Okay, here it says preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry.
0: Well, certainly, you know teaching, encouraging, uh, you know, preaching the word, etc. are all good things that a local, faithful congregation can do. Likewise, if a congregation has elders, you know, according to the New Testament pattern, that that is a blessing to a congregation. You know, elders that can watch out for, for instance, false doctrine, you know, coming in from the outside or even arising from within. We see Paul encouraging elders to do that. Acts chapter 20, verses 28, starting. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers," the term somewhat synonymous with overseer, elder, pastor, etc., to shepherd the flock of God, or shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. So certainly, you know, elders as an asset for, for keeping the local congregation sound. More importantly, as a congregation, upholding the truth, which really boils down to being a responsibility of all the members you know, of the local congregation. For instance, dealing with doctrinal issues, you know, head-on, you know, avoiding foolish disputes, which can divide a congregation, as mentioned in Titus chapter 3, beginning of verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, They are unprofitable and useless. They reject the vice of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And, of course, being within our own lives. Study, learn, grow to keep the local congregation strong. Basically, building our own foundation so that we can, if you will, weather the storms of life in our lives and keep error from creeping into the church. Certainly, we see that kind of an analogy as Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount with the house on the sand, house on the rock. Uh, that You can find that passage in Matthew chapter 7, beginning roughly verse 24. And certainly within a congregation, encouraging young Christians to continue growing. And of course, this is individual as well. Don't allow your growth to be stunted. For example, 2 Peter 3 verse 18 talks about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 talks about be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And also as a member within a local congregation, you know, step forward, help out to accomplish the work uh, that the Lord gave to the local congregation to do in terms of preaching the word, encouraging one another. Preaching the word to the lost, et cetera, and using the talents that God has given us to do our part, uh, as we see kind of illustrated in the parable of the talents that we see in Matthew chapter twenty-five, and of course you know through the local congregation, you know trying to spread the gospel, local community, you know, these and other kinds of things that we as a congregation can do within our locality. And opportunity permitted via, you know, outreach efforts like, you know, our website, you know, as an example, to try to influence those around about us to either avoid what I might call generational decay or to perhaps repent and come back to the Lord and to, quote unquote, know the Lord. All
1: right. Yeah, and everything that you just said really highlights the importance of a local congregation and how much good can be done and really God's plan for the church. So appreciate those thoughts. So as we kind of wind down, before we get to a couple of questions that have been submitted, just a few more thoughts. You know, when you think about the departure from the faith is normally a very slow process. Like going back to the beginning when we looked at a generation that did not know the Lord, You know, after Joshua and the elders died, it took some time, but slowly people eroded, 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 and next thing you know, they've fallen away from the Lord. And so, you know, sometimes it could take an entire generation. Sometimes it could take just a few years. But as you were touching on, Jeff, I think we want to highlight again, error can subtly creep into our lives. It can subtly creep into the church. Next thing you know, you have things like instrumental music or missionary societies that aren't authorized by the Lord. Uh, Unity and diversity, where it's like, well, do we really even have to all believe the same thing? Can't we just learn to get along and believe what we want? You start to have those kinds of attitudes. And so, you know, what often starts in society Take some time, but it's not surprising to see whether it's a modesty, sexual immorality, homosexuality, those kinds of things. It, you know, eventually they will find their way into the church if people are doing, as you mentioned, just fighting those things each step of the way to keep the church pure.
0: Right. Well, and even in some cases, it's well intentioned. I mean, for instance, I know a lot of religious groups are less into bible morality, bible ethics, etc because a lot of people in the congregation you know no longer have scriptural marriages or whatever the case may be and they start devoting more of their time, effort and resources to social causes or social good or satisfying the financial needs of the homeless or etc and all that's well and good you know done as individuals but we see as you say the the local congregations starting to drift into the same direction if you will uh, as society at large which is unfortunate and as Brian indicated as we're kind of starting to wrap things up you know we can certainly if you will keep the light of truth shining for our time and generations into the future you know if we're diligent and you know of course there's a number of different things that we could put under that category like Today, learning from the Israelites and not repeating their mistakes that they made. Being aware and sensitive to what's happening in the world, what's happening in society, what's certainly happening in the world of our children, and the ability of these worldly attitudes to creep into our lives, into the church. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Teaching our children, Ephesians 6.4 and Proverbs 22.6. Holding ourselves accountable and fulfill our own responsibilities. Never compromise the truth. Be willing to earnestly contend for the faith. Jude 3. Uh, Attempting to bring others to Christ. Focusing on preserving the true New Testament pattern, the gospel, if you will, of Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation. So that we will not have a subsequent generation that basically does not know God does not know Jehovah. Psalms 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Likewise, Psalms 89, verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. All generations. Then finally, Matthew chapter 16, verses 26 and 27, as Jesus said, our soul, really, when it's all said and done, is the most valuable thing we have, and we will be judged for how we have lived our lives. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. any other thoughts before we go to a couple questions?
1: Uh, Just one final thought, and that is hopefully our listeners have found this podcast to spark some thoughts about what we're seeing in our own generation, what we've seen in times past with whether it's the Israelites or even maybe generations within your own country that have sort of fallen apart because of ungodliness. And, you know, just be committed to learning from it and being resolved to say, you know what, I'm going to do my part to help perpetuate God through future generations.
0: All right. So the first question, Brian, for you comes from Scott. He writes in and asks, do we pay for sins from three generations ago? Now, honestly, I don't know why he says three. There might be some reference in here to what some people call generational cursing or generational curses. But yeah, I'll let you deal with the basic question. Do we pay for sins from three generations ago?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because you're right, there's really a parallel in Ezekiel 18 where You know, the people were making this statement, this proverb that the Lord said, I don't want to hear that proverb any longer. That our fathers ate grapes and our teeth are set on edge, they were saying. And what they were basically saying is that, you know, they sinned and, you know, we're paying for that because of their sin. Now, let's be clear. You might have an ungodly nation and there could be consequences that you suffer because of other people's sins. But you're not, God is not imparting their sins or the punishment for their sins on you. And that's really the difference. So to answer Scott's question, no, we are held accountable for our own sins, and we will be judged based on what we have done, as mentioned in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10, where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, you know, we may suffer the consequences because of the sins of others, but we will not be held accountable for their sins. Now, God addressed that notion that I referenced in Ezekiel chapter 18 of, you know, whether it's a generation being responsible for a previous generation's sins, or in the case of, as you read through Ezekiel, you know, a son being responsible for the sins of his father. And so let's just notice one part of this over in Ezekiel 18, verses 19 and 20, where it says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? The Lord answers, because the son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. Verse 20 goes on to say, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son, The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So that makes it very clear. And as a side note, for anybody that would, you know, is in a religion that teaches the doctrines of Calvinism, who would have you to believe that we've inherited or bear the guilt of Adam's sin, this is just one example of we know that's not true because the Lord makes it very clear that that's false. Uh, One other passage, Romans chapter 2, where it talks about the judgment of God in verses 6 through 11, talks about in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his deeds. And it goes on to talk about, you know, eternal life for those who are righteous. Verse 8, those who do not obey the truth, they will have indignation and wrath. So God is just. Verse 11, you know, there's no partiality. He's simply going to reward or punish each one of us based on how we've lived our lives. So as the scriptures clearly teach, You know, we're going to give an account for what we have done. And then, you know, we've been talking about throughout this podcast, you know, we do want to understand that how we live our lives has an important impact on our children and those around us. Based on our actions, we can affect whether or not our children or someone else may choose to be righteous or sinful. We might be what we call a stumbling block or on the opposite side based on our godly and righteous behavior, we can be an encouragement to others to do the same. And so, you know, that's why Jesus said we should let our light shine in Matthew 5, 16, where he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So speaking to uh, back to Scott, you know, just would encourage Scott and everyone else really to be obedient to the Lord's will so that you, of course, can be rewarded with eternal life. And you know, if, if you're interested in learning more about that on our website, BibleQuestions.org, we have a section called Steps to Salvation, which can help kind of walk you through hey, how do I get to that point where I can be a child of God and I can start following these godly principles?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Brian, the only thing I might add, and it's more in a generational sense, you know, certainly with the Israelites, Israelites as a nation, generally speaking, forgot God. Now, certainly there were probably individuals who remain righteous, but the nation, generally speaking as a whole, did not know the Lord, and suffered consequences. You know, even the righteous that were left in the nation suffered consequences with, you know, external enemies coming in and conquering them, as an example. We see, for instance, later on, the decadence of the Roman Empire. And even though there may have been, you know, a a good number of Christians within the Roman Empire, in general, the overall decadence of the empire, they fell to foreign oppressors. You know, who knows what the future of the United States is? And if there are righteous here, you know there still may be we still may suffer the consequences of, in general, a decadent culture. But you know the key point is, regardless of the culture, you know we individually, as you said, matthew five sixteen, we need to let our lights shine, regardless of the situation.
1: That's right. And be comforted in the fact that when it comes to the day of judgment, It's not going to matter what our nation did. It's going to matter what we did, right? And so as individuals, yeah, that's a good point, too. All right. So, hey, the next question for you, Jeff, is anonymously submitted. And they said, I've heard it said that God has no grandchildren. Could you comment on this?
0: Interesting concept. And yes, I would agree. Now, certainly under the law of Moses, when you were physically born, you were born into a covenant relationship with God, you know, by being a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises God made to them. However, under the law of Christ, each person, and essentially, as we've been talking about today, each generation must personally choose to obey, uh, personally choose to believe and obey the gospel, to become a child of God. Now, Some people, some cultures may think that you're saved just because you're born into a Christian family or you're saved just because you're raised in a Christian home. Well, that's not taught. As you said a few moments ago, it is a personal decision and personal accountability. Now, that said, you know, certainly there are advantages in being raised by faithful Christian parents and the teaching they give, the example of their lives, them discouraging activities with their children that would lead to sin, correcting their children, etc that is a, a blessing an advantage to be raised in a quote-unquote Christian home now that being said, as we said in terms of sometimes hardships lead to more consciousness of God and faithfulness and sometimes easy situations tend to lead toward getting God sometimes if we have like second or third or fourth generation Christians, if I could kind of use that term loosely, can, have its drawbacks, at least in the sense of not being quite as zealous or convicted as a first-generation Christian is who came out of the world because they were so disgusted with their lifestyle, truly repented, and so appreciative of their new life in Christ. You get second, third, fourth generations, and, you know, that's the culture in which they grew up in, of of, you know, talking about, you know, God and Bible and and things. Uh, And honestly, there may not be as much zeal. And sometimes we do see that tendency to, I'll say, decay over time, you know, with multi-generational Christians. So that's, you know, something else to keep in mind. But bottom line, back to the question. Yeah, God has children, doesn't have any grandchildren. There's no sense of hey, you're saved because your parents are saved, as an example.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, that's the first time I've ever heard that statement. And so I guess it's kind of the opposite of inheriting their sin, right? It would be like inheriting their righteousness. And the answer there is, as you said, no also. Interesting.
0: Indeed. All right, Jeff. Well, before
1: I point folks back to the website for any additional material,
0: any closing comments you'd like to make? You know, kind of looking back over the podcast as a whole, certainly there are generational, cultural kinds of trends that, you know, certainly we can be aware of. Unfortunately, the general tendency tends to be downward, I might say. But for us, for individuals, we still need to keep, you know, fighting the good fight, still keep trying to train our children, still keep trying to be in the world, but not of the world. And as you indicated, regardless of whether the culture goes into the future or what hard times may befall us because of, you know, decadent attitudes, you know, we individually can still remain faithful.
1: Yeah, well said, and I agree. Let's focus on what we can do, and to the extent we can, just fight the good fight, so you're exactly right. Now, if for those of you who are listening, if you'd like to kind of pursue some of these subjects a little more deeply, go to our website, BibleQuestions.org. Under the Topics menu, you can select the letter F for False Teaching. Also, several articles and questions about family. A J for Judgment. O for obedience, and T for truth. So I would encourage you to utilize our website. There's also on the homepage some other things that you can take a look at, like we have free correspondence courses that you can sign up for and go through a series of lessons to more formally learn about God's Word. So I would encourage you to utilize that to your benefit and ultimately study those principles for yourself and make application to your own life.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions Podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.